Hi, this is Kenneth Johnson, creator of Alien Nation, and you're listening to the Dead TV Podcast. Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Dead TV Podcast, a podcast dedicated to any and all canceled TV shows in the sci-fi, fantasy, and horror genre. I am your host, Dr. Chris. And I'm Mr. Seneca. And tonight we are talking about episode seven, Contact, or episode no, eight. episode eight. Episode eight. So on IMDb, they're listed a little incorrectly, only because of the fact of how they rate the pilot as well. Alienation, season one, episode eight, Contact, originally aired November 6th, 1989. The murder of an astronomer leads Sykes and Francisco to the discovery of an extraterrestrial probe passing through the solar system. But is it friend or foe? Sykes' relations with his newcomer neighbor, Kathy, develops. George and Susan discuss having another baby. On the X-Files, they talk about this research, um, the SARS program, which is basically the uh, looking into the existence of extraterrestrials. Now, the extraterrestrials are living on Earth, so that has been now completely thrown out the window. But they're still basically looking to the stars, because if the Tatanese are out there, what else is out there, right? Mm -hmm. um, and they obviously know that they come from a planet of, like, four billion people, and there's all these, you know, there's other problems that the Tatanese are probably, you know, told the United States government about. So they're... Keeping this research going is probably getting a lot of money from the United, from the government to keep to keep it going. While the um, alien research is going on, uh, Matt is connecting his own alien research into uh, Kathy's laundry with her doing laundry together. Yeah, they're doing laundry, and their unmentionables are mentioned several times. <laughs> yes, she was wondering about, like, the lingerie she picked out, and, you know, is this, like, you know, something somebody would be into? And then, of course, she finds his boxers. The Tatanese are not into the genitalia as much as humans are. A new concept for her to be, you know, like, for for Matt and her to have different interactions about this kind of thing. And it's tiptoed around here a little bit. You can definitely sense the awkwardness. Like, there's attraction, but there's the awkwardness of, what do I do? I don't know what to do or, or handle myself in the situation. And so it ends up being kind of an embarrassed moment. You know, it, it you feel for them simultaneously because both of them are feeling very awkward in the situation. Right. Also... It's cute. Uh, Matt gets a delivery at work of a giant case from his uncle, and his uncle was a, um, a Navy man, and Matt would go to stay with his uncle when his dad's drinking would get too out of hand until one day his uncle never returned home. Yeah. And he was 13 years old when uh, Uncle Jack went shipped out on a boat, and uh, Matt never forgave him for that didn't actually write him back any of his letters and, and was really kind of a kind of a jerk to his uncle for having his uncle leave and thus being sent back to his abusive father there's an incontin inconsistency with this episode they mentioned the caltech space telescope 
that was not put in orbit until 1991. Ah, okay. I don't know if it's still in space or not, but um, everyone is obsessed with Matt opening this trunk, including Kathy, including um, and, and everybody. And Matt's just like, what are you people's obsession with opening this thing? <laughs> well, I mean, it is huge. It's a huge trunk. And then Albert Einstein, you know, kind of goes on this tangent about, you know, Sykes's uncle being a sailor and, oh, you know, pirates put their treasure in trunks like this? And truth be told, we never actually see what's inside the trunk, but we do have like artifacts that get pulled from the trunk in a different scene. So you don't really see the trunk itself, but there's a peacoat, there's family photos, you know, there's a couple of other things, but it's no booty, no gold that, that Albert Einstein thinks that's in it. Right. The Tatanese don't have any photographs when they were younger, Kathy explains, that they are... You know, they they have very little yeah. knowledge of who their parents were sometimes, um, and they were you know their their lie their their child they, their childhoods are non-existent. The fact that Emily has a childhood is amazing, but because her her parents did not. Yes, yeah, and because in the slave ships, uh, the children would be taken away from the parents at age ten, and so there's a a previous episode had a flashback of George seeing one of his children being ripped apart from him and, you know, screaming out, you know, daddy, daddy. And it's heartbreaking. And so this, you understand that this type of upbringing has really affected Kathy so that when she sees like the family photos, she feels like a, a, a longing that she's never had, you know, and at the end of the episode, it kind of closes up where she shows Sykes, the star constellations and she says that that's you know orion is her father and cassiopeia is her mother and you know and that's all she has she has like a memory of them and that memory is kind of faded because it's been so long and then at the very end sykes gives her a telescope and that is, is has this very touching moment and you can see this burgeoning relationship between them this blossoming it's so nice to see the party that Kathy wants to have, she eventually reveals she doesn't actually want to, she didn't want to have the party, but there was a an incident that happens at the party, and Matt leaves, and Kathy feels bad about it later on. Um, yeah, she says, thank you for making this party a truly unforgettable evening, is this kind of backhanded, you know, insult towards Sykes, because he started getting a little bit aggressive with the people in the party. Uh, the people in the party were a bunch of jackasses. Well, you know, they're not really liking of cops, and understandably so. Do you think Matt was bringing up what happened in the um, the pilot in the movie? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. You know, all of the all of the tropes, the racist tropes, you can see in the show. So in this episode, we see a scene where George and Matt go to a private club called the Landmark Club. And uh, they're trying to, you know, trace down one of the people that they're following. And the person at the desk is completely racist and says that Matt can't come in without a shirt and tie. Fine. You know, but then he won't let George in either because he's newcomer. And so because he's newcomer, Matt kind of goes off on the guy saying like, well, you know, why don't you not allow, you know, and he says like a long list of. Racial Jews, stereotype yeah, words and the N word and well, not yeah, necessarily like, the N word, but yeah, whole list of them. Yeah, 
And then he puts a, a container of ice water down the guy's pants. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is like the green book. Have you watched that movie? I did not. It stars uh, Viggo Mortensen, best known as Aragon from Lord of the Rings, and Mahershala mm-hmm. Ali. This is the movie he won the Academy Award, one of the two movies he won the Academy Award for. Mahershala Ali will be Blade in Marvel's Blade whenever they get around to doing it. Um, and he, um, Viggo Mortensen is not necessarily a racist, but it is set in the 60s, and he does have some predetermined opinions about black people. Not prejudices, mm-hmm. but just he says some things that you probably shouldn't say. And Mahershala Ali calls him out on it once in a while, but he stands up for him like you wouldn't believe, especially when he finds out um, he's not only black, but, well, sorry, he knows he's black, but he's uh, he's black, but he's also gay, possibly, mm-hmm. or bisexual at least. And he, he really stands up for him a couple times that Mahershala tells him, you can't do this, this doesn't help my image, I'm a classic trained pianist or whatever, and he, he, he definitely picks some fights that Mahershala did not ask him to. Yeah. To show that this is not okay behavior. You do not treat people like this because they're black, you know, and things yeah. like that. And, yeah. and it, 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 it helps the friendship form. And in real life, these two people that the actors were playing uh, did have a longstanding friendship and actually died six months apart from each other. And their friendship lasted until they, they both parted in 2013. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's a beautiful movie. Highly recommend it. Linda Cardellini's in it. Has kind of a Christmas ending to it unintentionally i think but it, it, it honestly leads up to christmas because they're on a road trip that's supposed to end by christmas okay anyway go check it out this entire episode really hi- reminded me of that matt asks george why aren't you a f-, you know like you know it, it, like they, they 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 talk about how matt talks about the, the tatanese that calls them sponge heads and says things about them that george does not appreciate and the george the reason why george gets so pissed at matt is because he holds matt to a higher standard because he's his partner and matt is such a better man than half than than all of these bigots and racists put together yes because matt yeah. has laid down his life for george he has stood up for his daughter he's his partner in the police force you know he's the guy who took george on as his partner when nobody else would so despite matt's systematic racism like carol o'connor in some ways he's not actually a bad person and he needs matt to realize that and that triggers matt to call kathy to go to the party but obviously that doesn't really end very well yeah now our main plot in this episode has to do with a a probe a space probe that um, oh yes professor tower at the very beginning gets killed off because he finds you know, the numbers don't lie. There is an object there, and that object is moving away from our planet. Mm. So it's possible that information was gathered by this probe and is being taken back to, you know, somewhere where the overseers have control or whatnot. So this image that is taken from the crime scene is really the coordinates of this probe, this message-carrying device to go back to their alien planet. Not only that, but invasion of Earth. I mean, we find that out, yeah, because in this episode, one of the overseers has control over uh, Dr. Peterson, who is uh, leader of the Interplanetary Interest Committee. Dr. Peterson is really in for the exploration aspect Uh of the entire thing, but the overseers who are kind of in control of him want to send a message to this probe 
saying that, yes, all 250,000 Tectonese slaves are safe and they're there. But then there's also 4 billion more. And he's referring to humans also becoming slaves. So this message wouldn't go through without these doctors' cooperation. And every part along the way, the doctors are not wanting to cooperate, but are kind of forced to because of the threats from the overseers. Yeah, this is uh, bad news. Um, you, you, you have to remember that they, uh, the Tatanese weren't just dropped on Earth by their overseers' uh, slavers. They escaped and they crashed on Earth, or landed. I think it was, it's not really stated, um, at least thus far, what caused the, the ship to crash. Um, the gas on the ship made everyone passive. And it was so passive that they really wouldn't, you know, rebel in any sort of way. So it might have been like ship error, you know, some malfunction that caused the ship to crash on Earth. It's it's never really stated what the cause was, but I doubt it was revolution. True. Towards the end of the episode, as the conclusion of this main plot line, the message is about to go through, and uh, the t- the overseer clicks the button to send the message early because, you know, of the chaos of the fight, the gunfire, everything going around. Right. And turns out that the message was sent four seconds before the probe cleared our sun. So it's more than likely the message didn't go through, but it's not entirely certain that the message didn't go through. So there is some ambiguity and doubt from George as to their safety on this planet but he is still wanting this planet to become their home. You know, he, in this episode, he pines for the stars after seeing uh, a very detailed image through the lens of the telescope at the, um, for the astronomers. He pines for his native planet, of which he's never seen. He's never been on his native planet because he was born on the ship. And then at the end of the episode, he kind of comes to this realization that this planet is our home, this planet is where we belong, and to accept it, and then talks about, you know, having a baby to connect them and bond them to this world. I think it's a very sweet moment. And it's capped off to be even sweeter by um, the gift that uh, Matt gives Kathy to, uh, because they're... To bo- see the stars, yeah, the, the telescope, which was, which was actually his Uncle Jack's, right. so that must have been in the trunk as well. But previously in the episode, they were pointing out the uh, constellations, which Matt knew, and, and, and um, you know, uh, George had no idea Matt was a constellationist, and he learned that from his uncle, you know, and he you know kept that to himself or whatever, that he knows about the constellations. And the fact that, you know, like, the stars... Back in the day, way back in the day, millions of years ago, um, sailors would use the constellations to find their way home. Millions of years ago? (laughs) Hundreds of years ago. Do they do that today? I want to believe that sailors are trained to keep an eye on the sky and, and learn the constellations. So guess what? If your big piece of 2023 technology fails and you're stranded in the middle of the ocean without your cell phone or tracking devices, guess what you're going to have to use in order to get home? Yeah, you're going to have to use the stars. Like they like they did. I, I have to believe they train our, our Navy men and women to do this. What Matt does. You know what I mean? That his uncle taught him. 
Just like, just like, by the way, in the military, you're taught Morse code. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I think that people would learn how to use a sextant and to navigate by star. <laughs> you said sextant. <laughs> <laughs> That's all the notes I have for this episode of the uh, first of the two that we're covering tonight. And we'll be back at a quick short break unless you had any other notes. Oh, that's it. All right. We'll be back with a quick short break here on the Dead TV Podcast. Welcome to this special introduction for the Dead TV Podcast covering science fiction, alien nations, TV show, and the movie. Tonight, we have a guest on with us to talk a little bit about the Boston Science Fiction Film Festival, which is happening uh, right now and going until President's Day weekend. We have the director and head of the festival with us, Garen Daly. Thank you for coming on the Dead TV Podcast, Garen. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Have you ever shown Alien Nation at the Sci-Fi Film Fest? The movie? Wow, you know, I have to go back to the list. You know, we've been doing this for 48 years, and uh, every year we have about anywhere from 12 to 14 films. Um, so I'm sure we have, because I can't, I can't believe we haven't, but I just can't recall which one. It probably has not been in the last 15 years, though. Probably not. But um, what uh, what new exciting films are coming for the Film Fest this year that are not part of the thon, but uh, stuff that you're really excited that are being shown? Well, we've got you know we we've got a lot going on at the festival, and and one of the decisions we made after last year, and we looked at you know the attendance and who was attending and what was what was working and what wasn't working, is we came with the under understanding that what is going to be needed to bring people out of their houses in this post pandemic world is experiential events. So that's what we've kind of uh, added elements of that into this year. And we're going to see how that's go. The first experiential event we have is we have the time travelers ball, which is our, our opening night event on Wednesday. And it's really just nothing more than a, than a, a celebration of doctor who and his 60th anniversary with a TARDIS uh, games trivia, DJ, a Dalek, and a whole bunch of other things. So we're hoping people will come off and kick kick off with a nice, we'll have a couple of guests involved. Uh, we'll have an introduction from a cast member of the uh, of, of Doctor Who. Uh, and then a couple of days later, we have an experiential game called Isaac Asimov's Robots. It's a 1988 clue-type game that was done for VCRs. And we've converted it over so it turns into a movie-going experience. And people choose up teams and have fun, and that should be fun. And then, obviously, the big experiential piece is our marathon, which is the 24-hour binge view that closes out the festival starting Sunday at noon and ending 24 hours. And in between that, we've got some very famous directors coming in. We've got Dwayne Dunham coming in. Uh, Dwayne, if you don't recognize, he's, he's a film editor. He did... Uh, Let's see, he did Blue Velvet, Ooh. Twin Peaks, Empire Strikes Back, <gasps> Return of the Jedi, Indiana Jones, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and a whole bunch of other films. And so we're going to do a master class with him. Oh, my God. We're going to do a master class with the two film uh. editors and directors of Star Wars, The Clone Wars. Um, and they're going to say how that is different than doing live action. Uh, and we'll be doing that in one of our uh, partners' uh, comic book store, Kamikaze, in Davis Square. Um, and, uh, you know, we've got a whole bunch of films. Uh, one of the ones that seems to be getting a lot of traction is called It's Quieter at Twilight. And it is a documentary about the Voyager 1 and 2, which were one of those early 1970s uh, 
satellites that were sent out. Uh, you may recall the Voyager had that golden record that Carl Sagan put together. Yep. That's, that's, they're still out there, and they're still sending information out there. And this is a story about the people who are starting to retire because they've been working on it so long, and who is going to continue to monitor what Voyager 1 and 2 are doing as they reach further and further out into space. Garen, here's uh, a piece of sci-fi question uh, Q, uh, uh, trivia for you to see if you know the answer to. What famous animated series toy line had the Voyager as a huge MacGuffin as part of their plot line? Well, the I don't know, but I would assume it was because the aliens saw it and they came to Earth because they were invited. Yes, but what, but what show would that be? I can't remember. Really can't remember. You Sorry. probably didn't watch it, but uh, Transformers Beast Wars in the 90s. Yeah, that's right. You're right. I did not watch that one. I'm not a big Transformers guy. <laughs> the Beast Wars, which is relevant because today the new trailer came out for Rise of the Beast, the new Transformer movie coming out later this year. Um, the, the Voyager probe was obscured by the uh, Autobots and Decepticons, and it was a peace offering from the people of Earth that, you know, the war's over, here's a here's a thing or whatever, and, and go away. Please don't ever come back to Earth, by the way. <laughs> Erase it from your memory banks. Years later, okay. the, Mega, the second Megatron finds this golden disc because the original Megatron inscribed on it the location of Earth in the cosmos. So he could come back in time and wipe us out while we are still living in caves. <laughs> Well, that's 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 a very cheery topic. <laughs> so genocide by a madman on a children's cartoon to sell toys. But it's all about Voyager. It's still <laughs> out there and still sending signals, and we have a documentary on it. The Verge, you mean, from Star Trek The Motion Picture? <laughs> Do you remember that? Uh, not really. The Voyager Pro became The Verge uh, alien probe in the original Star Trek The Motion Picture. Oh. Uh, yeah, I see. I'm not. I'm not that good at trivia. I really am not. Uh, which is uh, which? Uh, what is your, by the way, your 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 favorite science fiction? Yeah, you know, my, my, my I'm on my computer here, and the Siri thing is so, or the uh, yeah Siri is is so uh, sensitive. It sometimes picks up things and starts working when I don't want it to work. Gotcha. Uh, sorry about that. Sorry, that's okay. What is your, by the way, your favorite sci-fi genre, sci-fi kind of film series? Are you there? Yeah. Hmm. I don't have an answer for that. Uh, is there something else you're I gonna can You're going to shut with? off Siri. Garen? Yeah. I'm here. We lost, I'm here. I lost it for a second. What happened? I don't know. Your Siri keeps talking. <laughs> I, I don't know why that is. Uh um, no, okay, so back to my question. I'll edit this before we plug it into the podcast. What is your favorite genre of science fiction? What what type of sci-fi do you love? Because you're not a big Transformer fan, and, and uh, Star Trek could be hit or miss for people. Oh, I like Star Trek. I like Star Trek over Star Wars. Uh, ah! <laughs> I, 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 like, I like it because it is more... Uh, inclusive and more uh, open and, and has more of the ideals of what I think humanity is over Star Wars, I, which is not to say I don't like Star Wars. I do like Star Wars. I remember when Star Wars first came out, I would uh, take uh, time off from work and go watch a matinee by myself in a big theater and get right like in the third row. So that image would just like overwhelm me. So gotcha. I mean, I do, I do like I do like Star Wars. 
I, I like time travel movies, which is something we're specializing in this year because I like the, the thing. Um, and, and the other thing that I like these days, and, and again, I've been in this business for a long time and I've seen probably more movies than most people should. Um, but what I really like is what we do at Boston Sci-Fi, which is bring in young directors who are doing either their first short or their first feature and giving them a showcase. This year we'll have 35 directors coming in over the five days of the festival. And, you know, that's a chance for the directors to meet other directors, which is what is great. And also the directors to meet audiences and the audiences to meet directors. So that the old wall that existed between audience and directors and uh, cast crew members is no longer uh, extend, uh, no longer there. It's broken down completely. Gotcha. What, uh... the, other thing that, the other thing that we're doing this year that I really, really like is we have we have two panels uh, uh, what we're calling Fabricators 1 and Fabricators 2. Uh, and this is, we're bringing out from Los Angeles the craftspeople who make the guns and the costumes of all the films and shows that you watch on TV or see in the theater. Oh. For instance, these are people who worked on The Mandalorian, on Picard, on, you know, uh, the new uh, Disney ones, um, and also, you know, Jurassic Park and Venom and stuff like that. They're the people that created the all the things that the people used in there. So we're going to have a two panels. One is how they come up with those ideas. And then the second one is how do they make those ideas come to life, uh, which I find immensely interesting. So we'll have two huge panels on that. And I, that's, again, part of what I, li I like. We're talking about the process of making movies and how to and, and TV shows. What is that like? We have film directors, we've got fabricators coming in, and in the meantime, we've got you know, over 50 shorts and about 35 features that are going to be shown and a number of conversations with a whole bunch of folks. Uh, it's what a festival is supposed to be about, and we're, we're really proud of what we're doing this year. Going back real quick to um, uh uh, Mr. Dunham, who will be in there. What uh, what day will he be there for people to? He will uh, be there Saturday okay. at noon at the Burn. Oh, that's awesome! That's fantastic. And that will be great can, to uh, see. It's it's great, and we'll be taping everything, and uh, and then we'll be repurposing it later. And you can get tickets at uh, uh, digboxoffice.com. And people, if they have copies of Star Wars, they can bring it to, to have him sign because he's, he's such if, a. If he's up for it, I don't. <clears throat> you know, we haven't talked about that, but I can't imagine he wouldn't be happier the, to meet meet people you know and talk to them and you know ex, and talk about his experiences i mean he let me i'll put it to you this way um when we were talking with him about coming out he had certain demands and i said geez we can't really do that and he says well i really want to come what, what what's the minimum we can do and so we talked about that he was very gracious and very nice and he wanted to come out so bad that he is doing this probably cheaper than he would do for any other festival Gotcha. Okay. So that, yeah, no, I, I completely understand that. Uh, yeah, it'll be absolutely fantastic to meet him. I mean, the editor on these films, just, you know, unbelievable, especially since we're in a year where we have a new Indiana Jones coming out later this year. Uh, and well, Star here, Wars here, is as big as ever. <laughs> here's something else for your, for your audiences. Uh, we haven't set the time and date yet, but we've got a verbal con confirmation that we can do a virtual interview with John Rafua. That's R-E-F-O-U-A. Now, you may not know who he is, but he is the film editor for Avatar, Avatar Way of Water, and he's working on Avatar 3, which is why he can't come out. But he's going to put a half an hour time aside for us for, from his work to be able to talk to us. Fantastic. 
Um, little bit about a little question about this uh, comic book panel. What's the comic book going to be about? You know what? I don't. I don't really know. I know we had this idea. We, we're going to be talking with um, a couple of of people who are in the independent comic book business. Uh, one is just set up a new business in. Uh, New York City, uh, who has a long history of working in the comic book industry. And then we've also got uh, one of the owners from Kamikaze talking about what it's like in the post-pandemic world for a comic book store to survive. So the two of those are going to talk, one on the production end and one on the, on the retail end. Uh, so it's really going to be a very interesting conversation. That's fantastic. As somebody who's making independent comic books myself, that is definitely a panel I have got to see. Um we actually have a new comic book coming out later this year, Detective Demona and the Case of the Human Trafficking Cannibals. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great name. It's a crime, noir, office, uh, horror, sex story. So the first part of the comic book is the office part. The middle part is the crime and the horror. And the last part, I would just say the last two pages are not safe for kids. Okay. Well, so I guess I can read it though, huh? Yes, you can read it. But we we homage many things in it. We we homage like Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and uh, we homage um, demonic uh, stories, and we homage like uh, crime uh, thrillers in a lot of different ways. So that's uh, that 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 will be coming out at some point this year. Cool. Yeah, Good I'm also working on a uh, documentary about comic book artists and writers who have passed away. And the pilot is currently getting re-edited right now, uh, which will focus on uh, Mark Grunewald. And we might actually submit the pilot to, uh, uh, you know, film festivals that allow pilots that are considered to be like short films to uh, to to film fest to to check out. And uh, we'll see. We're going to be, sh- you know, trying to pitch it to streaming services to uh, to to see what you know someone can pick it up. Not big streaming services like Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime. Although Amazon Prime does have a kind of an independent streak of stuff for themselves, but <clears throat> I digress. Um, more on that as it develops. But we have a rough cut of a pilot. It's not great, so I'm having it getting. Uh, I'm I'm getting it re-edited, and we have some new material that we're adding in. Um, the pilot's actually based on uh, about Mark Grunewald, uh, who was the um, the writer who wrote Captain America for ten years, and he created the character John Walker, uh, who appeared on the Disney Plus show Cap- uh, Falcon Winter Soldier. Cool. Yeah. Um, what is uh. What is uh, let's uh, let's go over real quick uh, some of the films that are going to be in the thon this year. I know Alien is part of it, and uh, and Back to the Future Part Two. Yeah, that's going to be in seventy millimeter. That's a really rare print, and that's <clears> one of the things that you know was nice working with the Somerville Theater is that they have the capability of showing not only thirty five millimeter but seventy millimeter as well. So we're going to be showing uh, six films in, in celluloid rather than just digital. Fantastic, but, yeah. But some of the other films we're doing will be um, uh, Fat Back to the Future 2, you just mentioned that, Aliens, uh, um, Stargate, uh, oh, Happy Star- Accidents, which is a cute little film with Marissa Tomei and uh, uh, D'Onofrio in it, and um, written, by, written and directed by Brad Anderson, who is from Connecticut, uh, so that's a little bit of a new thing. Uh, after Yang is going to play, we have this really horrible, I mean, really horrible 80s film called Future Kill. Um, and it, it's got 80s fashions in it, 80s music, 
80s editing, 80s 80s actors in it, and it's 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 pretty abysmal. It's, people are going to have a really hard, fun time yelling and screaming at this film, and that, we always want to have one of those, you know, where where you, where the audience can actively jeer the people in the film. <laughs> that's good, um, and Godzilla too. I mean, that's the original yeah, that's, Japanese. That's, the, that's the Japanese version. That's cool. not the Raymond Burr version. So it's a Japanese version. So it's a little longer, and it's more in keeping with. The, the more serious themes of what Godzilla and, and that kaiju was all about. And what's funny is that next year is the 70th anniversary of the release of Godzilla in Japan. That is true. And uh, this year, Godzilla returns to Japanese cinema, not part of the legendary series with, uh, you know, Eleven from Stranger Things and Vera Farmiga, but a brand new Godzilla from Japan is coming out this November. Yeah, I'm, I'll be curious to see about that. I, I, every time I look at these Godzilla films, which I always have anticipation of wanting to like, um, most of them seem to be sh- fall short. You know what I mean? A little bit, yeah. Um, I mean, it's just funny that we have Godzilla. We, we got we got Godzilla all over the place this year. I mean, we have uh, Apple TV is going to have a Godzilla TV series about the monster hunting organization. Kong vs. Godzilla 2 is in development. Um, there's the Godzilla movie coming from J- the, J- the Japanese, and Gamera has an animated series coming on uh, Netflix. You know, maybe this is the golden age. Maybe it's a new golden age. Never can tell. Yeah, and we had and we had Shin, who did the last Godzilla movie, uh, do Ultraman recently, which I didn't get a chance to see, which I, I really want to. Yeah. So anyways, yeah, so I think it's going to be a good... I actually think it's going to be a good year for film in general. I'm really looking forward to 65, which is coming out in March. Yes, definitely. Something I could definitely see showing at the marathon in a few years. Yeah. 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 And uh, they're also supposedly talking about doing a Live, Die, Repeat sequel with Tom Cruise and Emma... Yeah, that's, that... that's, been, in the work, that's been in the works for a while. Uh, and I think Doug Lyman is going to be directing that again as well. That would be great now that he's got his uh, Top Gun 2 out of his system and the back-to-back Mission Impossible sequels are filmed and ready to go and put in theaters. Let's get that film together because that was an underground hit that was shown at your festival back Only in... Only like... if Emily Blunt is in it. Yes, of know. course, definitely, absolutely. I mean, you showed that back in your festival back in 2015 when the blizzard threw the festival into chaos. (laughs) And you guys had, we had the delay, I think, until like 4 p.m. in the afternoon. Remember that? Uh, No, I don't. I mean, (laughs) we've had so many issues. I mean, we've had snow apocalypse. We've had... That was the snow apocalypse. (laughs) Was that the snow apocalypse? Yeah, that was the year. That was was the year we got like the uh, record 115 inches of snow in like one winter. Well, for me, it was like three back-to-back 18s. And they shut the state down. And so uh, where were we going to stay open? And I had to make arrangements for, uh, I found out that the Airwife Parkway was going to be open. So I arranged for taxis and buses yep. to bring people back and forth. Yep, that was 2015. I remember it. Yeah, that was uh, that was quite a challenge. That was quite a challenge. Well, Garen, why don't you plug away where people can find tickets for the festival? Oh, sure. Thanks. Well, first of all, you can find out more information always uh, at bostonsci-fi.com, at facebook.com slash bostonsci-fi. And you can pick up tickets at digboxoffice.com. And, you know, there's going to be all sorts of great things for people. We're going to have stuff, families, documentaries, dramas, animation. Uh, it's anything to do with science fiction. We got it. Fantastic. Well, Garen, thank you for coming on the Dead TV Podcast to talk a little bit about the Boston Science Fiction Film Festival. It fits our theme of science fiction that we're covering for the next several months with our coverage of Alien Nation. Thank you, Chris. I really appreciate it. What smells like shoe polish? Be quiet. We have a promo to do. 
I'm Jeff Ferry, and this is my hetero podcast mate, Chris Durkacz. We are the hosts of the Jay and Silent Bob Minute. We break down the Kevin Smith films featuring Jay and Silent Bob one minute at a time, starting with Clerks. I have a hockey game at 12. Chris, please. So if you've ever worked a dead-end job behind the counter discussing Star Wars while slinging coffee, nudie mags, and cigarettes... Cancer merchant! Cancer merchant! Settle down! Or if you ever leaned outside a convenience store, secretly hated all your customers, or closed your place of business to attend a funeral, you should join us at Jay and Silent Bob Minute on DuelingGenre.com as we discuss the milkmaids, berserkers, and the significance of the number 37. In a row? Come for the clerks, and stay for the rest of the Jay and Silent Bob Minute fun. Right, Chris? I'm not even supposed to be here today. For the episode Rock and Robin tonight, well, this episode of the Dead TV podcast, we're recording this at night. So every time I say tonight, it's because ninety percent of the time we're actually recording at night. And uh, when that song plays, it is Matt and Kathy dancing to it because yes. she's learning to dance from Matt. Correct. And the episode we're talking about is Three to Tango. Three to Tango originally aired November thirteenth, nineteen eighty nine. A series of murders of Binom, a rare kind of Tectonese needed for catalyzing reproduction, raises fears that purists are trying to stop the Tectonese from breeding. Francisco asks Albert to be the Binom for his and Susan's next child. Right at the beginning of the episode, we get right back into the um, stuff that we hear today on uh, certain conservative radio shows, uh, which do have their voice here in America, about how we are being overpopulated by foreigners. Here in Massachusetts, um, last year, during the election of, in November, they passed uh, a law to allow illegal aliens to get driver's licenses. So the episode opens up with a murder, most foul. Two Tectonese people in bed have their bedroom door busted open and shot with a double-barrel shotgun. And turns out that one of them is a binom which is uh, only accounts for 1% of the population, and they are the third party in the reproduction uh, process. So they provide the catalyst. You know, it, I, I'm not exactly sure how to, to put it, but kind of like a lubricating and, and you know, chemical reaction so that uh, the seed gets implanted in... in the pot in the birthing pod. Yeah, I don't know even how the hell they, they. I have no idea. We never asked Kenneth Johnson to explain how the hell this whole process with they with them even works. I didn't care to even think about it until I found out that it was the guys who give birth or whatever to the reverse. Uh, I, yeah. The entire thing. Yes. It's so complicated from, as all hell. From what I can see in this episode, uh, the binom copulates with the wife in this very ritualistic thing. It's very beautiful. It's unusual for, you know, our American culture and whatnot to see, but it's, it's a very ritualized. It's very family orientated. Friends of theirs get together and they meet the binom and, you know, the important people to the couple. And it's a very joyous occasion for them. 
And then the binom copulates with the wife and adds his catalyst chemicals from his ejaculate. Then the couple goes upstairs to actually make love. And that, that's when the sperm from the male gets implanted into the eggs of a female into the birthing pod within her womb. And then how that pod gets transferred over into the male, I do not know, but it does. <laughs> and then the males give birth, kind of like how seahorses do. Through the magic of science fiction. But I guess it's maybe it's like the seahorses, because you mentioned the seahorses. Yeah. yeah, it's exactly like the seahorse. Or Enemy Mine, in that the male alien gave birth. Yeah, yeah. So while seahorses don't have the third person within their mating rituals, it's it's uh, they do give birth to the live seahorse children. We never asked Kenneth Johnson about how would this whole thing work if, like, they introduced transgender Tatanese aliens. I'm that would sure be interesting. Kenneth probably didn't even think about that. I mean, he was trying to be as progressive as he could with the show and giving everyone a voice, but the the whole transgender thing wasn't as hot as it is today. So, I guarantee that would have been an interesting um, process. Was like, okay, so only the guys give birth. Well, now the guy is a woman. So, can they still give birth because they still have all the internal stuff? Well, maybe. I don't know. How does that work? Well, we'd have to get into the explanation about the surgery of transgender uh, reconstruction. We learn in this episode that Albert Einstein is a binom. Yes. Uh, he's got something for the uh, coffee cart girl. Yes, he's got a crush on the on the coffee cart girl, the sandwich cart girl. It's very adorable. But because he is a binom, he also feels like he can't really belong because all the binoms live in a monastery and they serve the population you know being uh mating with you know 700 women in a year uh albert says uh, and and that's just to keep the population going matt asks george if he would uh does he feel does it make him feel bad that Emily, or, no, I'm sorry, uh, not Emily, Emily's his daughter. Susan. Susan is sleeping with another man, and George is just like, oh, I'm fine with it. It's totally romantic, and or not romantic, but it's like, it's the way it is, and it's totally fine. And this is right after they have their discussion about, like, the spots on uh, the woman's back of a Tatanese woman is a, their erogenous zone, because while Matt's da dancing with Kathy, he touches her, and she starts to having, like, some kind of, like, midway orgasm. Like, she, the look in her face and the look in her eyes clearly indicates it's like, Touching her clitoris. She is very turned on, yes. Which is also an erogenous zone for some women on Earth, too, but obviously they're aliens, so the spots do something. Hence why they are always, you know, cone-heading, knocking their heads together and stuff. Um, it's the, <laughs> so it's the, the erogenous spot. zones for uh, the tectonese include, like, the small of the back, the bridge of the nose, the backs of the knees, and they do like the vibration of humming. Yes. You know, so much so that you can see uh, kind of in the distance in certain shots, sex, uh, sex shops that say time to hum, you know? <laughs> I guess if that's what does it for you. I mean, people humming in people's ears does it for people as well, so. Yeah, I mean, human erogenous zones are, you know, more than just the genitals. You know, it's neck, the lower back, you know, shoulders, uh, ears, yeah. Uh, George says to Sykes that he, uh, it's like humans are obsessed with genitalia and the Tatanese are not. True. 
uh, we'll get more I into mean, this whole like five... genitals, tatanies, sex stuff later on. Um, I mean, besides the fact there is obviously a birth coming up, but also later on in an episode involving a sex class with some characters and how to have sex with a um, a newcomer. Mm-hmm. Because it's not the well, it, it is it is pretty much the exact same way, but there's more to it as well. So. Um, obviously they're born with, you know, the anatomy to breed with us, hence why they're here, but, um, they get into that into more detail in, I think, one of the, the made-for-TV movies. Okay. Yeah, so we'll, we'll get, get to we'll that when we cover get to it again. It. Yeah, we'll cover it again, but this episode is all about the, uh, the sex of the newcomers getting discussed, but we get into the nitty-gritty later on. Isaac Newton, another newcomer with a weird name that's based on someone from historical... Uh, yeah, fic- uh, historical historical. Uh, the, the people doling out names were lacking imagination. Correct. A couple of the people in this episode include Ivan uh, J- Javara, who was in um, Casino Royale, the Daniel Craig version, The Hunt for Red October, Independence Day, and Terminator Salvation. Alan Scarf, um, Lethal Weapon Three, Babylon Five, back in the day. Um, I was trying to... Oh, Isaac Newton. That's who I pulled up. Isaac Newton's played by Patrick Johnson. Uh, only in a few things. Not very much. Ivan Guevara plays uh, Bjorn, who is the character that takes over Albert Einstein's position as janitor when Albert decides to go back to the monastery. Right. So there's a, a small period in the episode where, you know, Albert is working, he gets embarrassed by Sergeant Dobbs, you know, flirting with the cart girl and Dobbs kind of asks her out on behalf of Albert and he kind of gets a little weirded out and then he goes back to the monastery is there for maybe a few days and then decides he misses working and goes back to the office but in the meantime Bjorn has tidied up the office to the point where Sergeant Dobbs is really missing Albert Einstein. One of the things we forgot to point out in the last episode, um, and only because uh, Buck shows up in this one, is the uh, Tetanis UV light themselves for energy. They absorb it. They're like plants. No, I don't think that they're like plants. I think it's more like a seasonal affective disorder type of type of thing where the UV light energizes them. So, like, if, if you suffer from seasonal affective disorder, UV light uh, or, you know, uh, special lights to counter that. You shine them on you. You feel better because you're getting more light. I think it's the same type of thing. The size of the spots mean anything to the Tantini? I don't think the size of the spots mean anything. But George mentions that it's sexy if a woman has the spots running from their neck and it, they dwindle down into just being like a like freckling that goes all the way down to a line that uh, down their back to their buttocks. Right. So, and everyone's, if you notice, everyone's um, spots are actually unique. The costume design for it made all of their headpieces completely unique for the person. So, from episode to episode, you will see that they have the same pattern of spots, but those patterns don't repeat on any other character. Mm. <laughs> the ritual for the implantation is like some kind of like candlelight. Uh... What's the name of that stupid movie with Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise? Eyes wide shut, all standing around, watching an orgy. It's as erotic as all get out for some people. I'm not a big voyeur, so it wouldn't do much for me. I know this is supposed to be like a uh, 
cultural ritual for this to happen, but it would just be like, I would be in Matt shoes the entire time. It reminds me a lot of because way, of way back in the day when marriages were uh, kind of arranged and uh, the married couple may have sex in a semi-public spot for the parents of each family to prove that copulation did happen and to also prove legitimacy of an heir if one to be created from such coupling. That was something that happened, uh, I don't know, way back. Like, I'm talking 1300s, 1400s. And um, I'd imagine that those types of rituals were pretty similar to this one, where the family is there, and then they just turn their backs to them as they have sex. And, uh, you know, so all the family is assured that the product of this union will be a, you know, she didn't have a chance to cheat and yeah, all that type of thing. But it's what it reminds me of. It's very beautiful in its own way. It's just weird because we also have Emily there, too. What was that? Emily is there, too. Oh, yeah. The kids are there. <laughs> That's not. No, I'm sorry. But there is lines to be drawn. And that would just be like, I, I just I'm like, what the fuck? I mean, but back in the day, it was an entire family thing. Oh, like, God. both sides of the family of the married couple were there to kind of observe and make sure that the act takes place. We don't have those types of things today, thank goodness. It seems very embarrassing, but, yeah, it, it happened. The knife coming out of nowhere just before the coupling, by the way, is, like, the, the, he just, he, the way he pulls that knife out to kill George. Arnold, sorry. The guy with the knife. The leader. The yes. leader of the uh, the monks. Yes, the leader of the monks. Just the like, binom. wow, monks are uh, different in different cultures and races of species. Most but Sykes, are pretty, Sykes uh, really puts, uh, puts a, a nail into that because he says that religious fervor, regardless of what religion it is, there's always going to be someone like that guy. Someone that thinks that it's it's worth it to doom an entire species for something the sake of tradition and religion. Yeah, that's the biggest problem I have with religion, is their traditions get in the way of uh, your rights to do whatever the hell you want within reason. Yeah, I I, exactly. I hate religion for a lot of those type of reasons. I, I, I can't stand it. Um, and religion in this show comes up a lot because of... Matt obviously doesn't seem to be a person of faith like most cops you know, on TV or written as Catholics. You know, you'll get a Jewish cop once in a while, but let's face it, most of the time in, in cop dramas, cops are Catholic. It doesn't seem like Matt has any kind of faith, so he's just kind of running into, you know, what George and the people believe in. They worship some kind of god of some kind or another. The Tectonese, they, they worship Selene and Andarko. Selene. And that's who they who they um, give reverence to as they they touch their hearts and cross and then touch their heads. They okay, so they 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 worship Celine the singer and Donnie Darko the. <laughs> no. Okay, got it. Celine and Darko. That's not what I heard. I'm hearing what I want to hear. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Selena and Donnie Darko, but they also uh, uh, are we we um, we didn't mention it. The uh, the uh, the uh, the song I played, by the way, was Rock and Robin, and it is by uh, Bobby Day. I don't know anything about this guy other than the fact this is like his one biggest hit is Rock and Robin, and Michael Jackson then would do a cover of it years later. All right, yeah, yeah, that's. 
I didn't even know who Bobby Day was, so um, I'm like trying to look up uh, other things he's done. This is really. But every, everyone's heard the sound, the song "Rock and Robin." Yeah, though. but everything else, I just I've never heard of him really. I mean, he was on the Dick Clark Show and American Bandstand, but "Rock and Robin" is again. That's probably why "Rock and Robin" is his biggest hit because everyone has known of it. He died of prostate cancer in 1990 at the age of 60. So he lived to see this episode air. I don't know if he had any opinions about it, but he was alive. He was 59 years old when this episode came out. Mm, yeah. It ends on a romantic note of uh, Susan and George going to bed to finish the ceremony to create the child inside George's womb. And we get an outside shot of the church. And a very, very sweet ending with uh, Sykes invites Kathy to learn the cha-cha. But Sykes goes to uh, church, which is, you know, again, like, you, 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 you kind of get some indication that he's got some faith, but obviously this is the first time we've ever heard of it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, he has a very uh, strained relationship with his religion. Which is totally fine. His dad, we don't know anything about his mom. We learned that his dad was a drunk. He's divorced. Uh, his ex-wife remarried. His daughter is dating a hippie. Makes a lot of sense. And he's a cop, so he sees the bad side of humanity all the time. Right. So it's really hard to re- retain some sort of religious conviction. Correct. I mean, his partner was killed by a, you know, a newcomer, so... Yeah. So that's not brought up every five minutes, thankfully, and they kind of sweep it under the rug with the exception of, like, what we heard in the last episode, but it's it's all part of the good character development that they give this show and why the show, you know, uh, continues to thrive. And Kenneth Johnson, when he came on the show, or Eric Pierpoint said how much the show resonates to today's society so much. And I do agree. I think every, every single episode we find something to uh, talk about with today's society to be like, wow, look, the alienation is more relevant today than ever before. So You know, honestly, if this were in a current run on television... Like, they're just going to rerun this, but it's public, it's, you know, Friday night lineup or whatever. I still think this would be a winner. Like, the writing is so good. All of the storylines hold up to today. Here, here's the problem I see with a show like this, and, and, and Ken kind of talked about this a little bit, is that this show, the way it's written right now, the way it's written as it is, is about the culture of the late 80s into the early 90s. Now... Could this show with the exact same kind of writing and the exact same kind of characters hold up today without making any changes and without adding anything else to make it a little bit too over the top in its political statement? Do you feel like certain shows today, when they're trying to be like alienation, go way overboard? Point in fact, Supergirl, me and my last guest were talking about how Supergirl started one way and then just went off on a tangent like crazy in almost every season. And it just it just never stopped. And it alienated a ton of people. Even people who are on their side about certain politics and opinions, they just wouldn't stop. Yeah. Do you agree? Or do you think the show could be written the way it is? Or do you think they'd have to add more to get people into it? Honestly, I think it's good as is. Okay. But what I'm saying is, they do you think they wouldn't need to overlay the show with any more... Uh, I don't use like using the word woke. I, I hate that word, but just more open mindedness about certain things with, you know, stuff that they may not cover on here because the Tatanese are supposed to be the all encompassing every uh, outsider to America and the world. Do you think they're doing enough to cover it? Like they never bring up anything about anyone being gay until the made for TV movies. 
I don't fault the show for not covering that type of topic. You know, I, it's it's not really part of the Tectonese culture so far as we've seen in the show. Right. It could be something that they could add if they were to do a second season and a second season in modern times type of thing. But honestly, the show is so good that even the cultural references aren't that far off from the ones today. Right. Like maybe a, a mention of the Internet, you know, something like that would yeah. be added. But but really, as it is, it's still very good. So like what, what I'm the, trying to – long story short is you agree with me that what they're doing – what they have as it is is enough to make a point about – certain things in in politic in 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 uh representation and politics that we don't need to go more than what what Kenneth Johnson who's like on my screen right now and his crew came up with to make everyone feel included with this show. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. that's the point. I, I took I a long time for me to say that. The, Sorry. I I think they've tackled enough of the very driving topics yeah. that of alienation, the racism, immigration, the problems of a society um, accepting someone different. I, I think all that is relevant. Good. And if we were to add like trans storylines or gay storylines or something like that, it would just improve it. But what we have, like the, the show, if you were just to put out the show with the guise that it's actually a new show, like faking that it's a new show, I think it would still talk to today's audience. Okay. Gotcha. That's all I wanted to say. Yeah. Sometimes I think shows go overboard they don't need to, and sometimes I think they're hitting it where it needs to be, and that's enough. You know what I mean? I mean, nearly every episode has a moment where there's racism confronted or there's uh, some sort of um, plight that the Tectonians have to deal with. Right. With the, the pure blood you know, sect, the the purists, all of that still is very relevant today. So honestly, yeah, yeah, just release the show as if it was a new show and people would still get it. Got it. Cool. That's all the chat we have here for these two episodes of the Dead TV podcast coverage of Alienation. You can find us on Facebook uh, where I posted a link of other cool stuff of things that we have covered. We're going to be in 23, making sure we get more posts up on the Facebook page as they get a lot more interaction when we post more. Um, so I'm going to make sure that actually happens in 23, so that way we have more interaction with people who have been tuning into the show. Also, you can find us on our individual Twitters at ChrisDSAB and at ElegantlyKinky, or send us an email, thatradiopower at gmail.com. Leave us a review somewhere, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Audible as well, the uh, Audible uh, podcast section. You could leave a review there, too. And we'll be back in a couple weeks with another couple exciting episodes of Alienation and possibly another guest coming up from either the show or maybe the media material. Awesome!